Well, good morning, church. Uh, can I get you to turn with me, please, to uh, Philippians chapter 3? Philippians chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 11. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. Uh, there is an outline in your um, order of service, uh, but uh, that might be helpful. But most importantly, if you've got your Bible or your device, for those who don't have it, it's going to come on the screen, but it's better to see it. Okay. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we look at your word today, we ask that your spirit will point us to Jesus, that we might see and appreciate the surpassing worth of knowing him. Uh, fill our hearts and minds with Jesus, we pray. And we ask this in his name. Amen. There's an old joke uh, that goes like this. What does the preacher mean when he says, finally? The answer? Absolutely nothing. Well, so far in Paul's letters to the Philippians, uh, he has been grateful for their partnership. He has been concerned for their unity and perseverance. Uh, he's shown a, a good model of this by his own gospel priorities. Uh, he has urged them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. He's highlighted the example of, of gospel workers that were known to them. Uh, and most of all, he has pointed them to Christ, clothed in his gospel, and called on them to follow his example of humility. But now in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul comes to the next section of this letter, and you see it begins with, in our translation, it begins with the word, finally. Now you might think it a little bit strange when Paul says finally, when he's only halfway through his letter. Uh, but actually the Greek word translated finally here can also be so then, or well then, or just introduce a new section, and that's probably what that means. But the important thing in chapter 3, verse 1, is how Paul commands the Philippian Christians, and the Holy Spirit commands us to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord. Now, this is not Paul saying, Hi, I don't see a big smile on your face today. you got to be happy, you know? No, 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 no. It's not saying like that. It's not saying simply rejoice for no good reason. What Paul wants the Philippians to do is to rejoice in the Lord. He wants them to rejoice in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's what the Spirit wants us to do as well. He wants Jesus to be the one we delight in. He wants Jesus to be the focus of our thanksgiving and praise. He wants Jesus to be the source of our joy. He wants Jesus to be what we value most in our lives. He wants us to rejoice in him and therefore prize him above everything else. But there was a danger, a peril that the Philippian church would soon face that would, that would threaten to rob them of their joy in Christ. It probably wasn't there yet, but it was infecting other churches that Paul had planted. And so Paul wants to warn them about this threat. It's something he's warned them about before, and he's going to do it again and again. So he says in the second half of verse 1, uh, to, 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 to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. And this threat that Paul warns them about is from a group of people that we call the Judaizers. Uh, we met the Judaizers last year when we were looking at Galatians. Uh, Judaizers would have come to the churches that Paul had founded and said something like this. They would have said, you know that Paul guy who told you the gospel? He told you that you need to trust in Christ in order to be saved. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
And he said, if you trust him as your savior and your Lord, then, then you'll be right with God. Yes. Well, you know, what he says is kind of true. But he hasn't given you the whole story. You know he preaches from the Hebrew scriptures. Well, the Hebrew scriptures teach us to follow the law that God gave Moses. And you can't hope to be saved unless you keep that law. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus. We, we cried, quite, quite agree with Paul there. Uh, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But he is the Jewish Messiah. So if you want to follow him as your Messiah, then you need to be part of the Jewish people. And to be part of the Jewish people, you need to be circumcised. So if you want to be saved, trusting in Jesus is not enough. You need to be circumcised. And then to go on and obey that whole Old Testament law. Okay? So, let's start putting things right in the church. Let's organize some circumcisions to start with. Uh, make sure you're all properly Jewish so that you can be properly Christian. Sounds quite reasonable, doesn't it? What does Paul say in verse 2? Look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The dogs is what the Jews would have called Gentiles. But now he's calling them this. And mutilating the flesh in the Old Testament was a pagan practice that was forbidden, but now he's using that for circumcision. Why do you think Paul is so angry, so strong, when it comes to these people? Well, they're preaching a false gospel, aren't they? A false gospel cannot save. And not only does it not save, but it draws people away from who could otherwise have trusted the true gospel and been saved. Because you see, when you add to the gospel, you destroy it. What these guys were doing was saying that trusting in Jesus is not enough to be saved. Something else as well. In their case, it was circumcision. They call that gospel plus. Gospel, Jesus, his death and his resurrection, plus something else like circumcision, in order to be saved, is no gospel at all. Because if you add something to the gospel, you're taking away from it. The moment you say that something other than faith in Christ is necessary for salvation, you have made it contingent upon your own work. To have faith in Jesus to save you means to trust him alone to save you. Salvation comes as a gift from God to those who trust in Jesus. If you try to add to that gift, you actually rob it of its power because it's no longer a gift. If you add circumcision as a requirement of salvation, saying you contribute to salvation by what you do, saying that the death of Jesus received by faith is not enough to take away your sins, you have to contribute that as well. And it's wrong. Opens up the whole Old Testament law you've got to keep. And then finish law. It is a false gospel. A false gospel will lead people to hell. And that is very serious. Furthermore, if you add to the work of Christ, you diminish the work of Christ. And you rob Christ of the glory. Because it's no longer Christ and Christ alone that people are relying on for salvation. Salvation is something you work for rather than you give thanks for and work out. And you lose your appreciation, your full appreciation 
for Christ. And if we do not appreciate the totality of the salvation that is won for us in Christ, then we won't rejoice in him. Our joy will be in something else. But it won't be in the Lord. For it's only when we know that Jesus has done everything for us, when we're fully relying on him, when we really appreciate his finished work on our behalf, that the focus of our joy comes to rest on him. Friends, there are many people who teach, no, actually, there are not many people who teach today that we need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. There are some. I've never met a Judaizer. I've seen websites that promote Judaizing. Like, hmm, okay, it's there. Uh, but Judaizing is only one form of Gospel Plus. Where do we see Gospel Plus today? Well, I'll tell you where I have met. I've met people who say you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not preaching against tongues as a gift from God. But if you make it a requirement for salvation, that's Gospel Plus, isn't it? I've met people who say you have to get baptized in a certain way in order to be saved. Right? Trusting Jesus is not enough. You have to get baptized as well, and by full immersion, and in our church. Right? In our particular church, you know. Any other church, talaku. Right? <laughs> Friends, there are lots of things you can add to the gospel. Baptism, confirmation, sermons, Lord's Supper, coming to church each week, having a quiet time every day, Involving growth groups, expository preaching, Bible study courses, church camp, whatever. And these are good things. Every last one of them. We want to encourage every one of them in our community. But they are not prerequisites for salvation. Salvation comes by trusting in Jesus who died for you as your Savior and your Lord. And if we add to that, we add to the gospel. And we take away from the gospel and destroy it. The Judaizers claim to be the ones who preserve the old Jewish religion. They claim continuity with Abraham and the people of Israel who were circumcised on God's instructions. But Paul sees things differently. True Old Testament religion finds its fulfillment not in these Judaizers, but in Christ and his people. It is Christians, Paul says, who are the actual true circumcision, not the Jews. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We, we are the covenant people of God. We worship God not in the Old Testament temple and its rituals and sacrifices, but by the Spirit with all of our lives. We put our trust fully and solely in Jesus. We glory in Him. Paul says, He is the one we boast about. He's our pride and our joy. We rejoice in the Lord. But that's not the way Paul had always seen things. In the past, he, he found his assurance elsewhere. In fact, he treasured those very things that the Judaizers were now championing. And if anyone had grounds to be confident in their religious standing, it would have been him. 
He'd gone as far as anyone else in the Jewish religion of the day. He says in verses 4 to 6, Though I myself has confidence, reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Right? Paul would have made those Judaizers proud. Can't imagine anyone more Jewish than him. His ancestry, his childhood, his training, his fastidiousness in keeping the law, even his persecuted Christians, every box, tick, 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 wow. He's considered the up-and-coming big man in the Jewish religion. He's got so much going for him, so many reasons to rely on his own achievements even before God because he's done everything right according to his religious belief. All there. But now he has a new perspective. And he sees things differently in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I heard a story many years ago about a successful partner in one of the big four accounting firms uh, who had a peculiar habit. Right? This is way before they used computers to key in accounts. Those days they kept everything by hand. Uh, and every morning this guy will go to his desk and he'd open a locked drawer and look inside. Look at something inside. They lock the drawer again and start his work auditing books. And his subordinates knew that he hid the secret of his success in that drawer. So they waited for the opportunity. One day, when the partner had gone out of the city, the juniors decided to find out what makes him such a great auditor. So they broke into the drawer, breathlessly looked inside, and there was one small piece of paper. So they picked it up and read it. And it said this, Left is debit, right is credit. <laughs> Friends, when the Apostle Paul was following first century Judaism, when he put his confidence in the flesh and all the things he'd achieved, he had his debits and credits the wrong way around. What he thought were assets were actually liabilities. You see, he thought all those religious achievements would make him right with God. But in reality, there were simply things that gave him false confidence in the flesh, in his own actions, and blinded him to his desperate need for the true righteousness that comes from God. You know, being religious and being moral is dangerous because you think you're okay because of it. We make the mistake of thinking that a good Jew or a good Christian or a good Muslim or a good Hindu or a good Buddhist or a good atheist is good, but we're not. We're all rebels against God. We're all sinners. We all need Jesus' death to cover us. But religion, any religion is dangerous because it lulls people into a false sense of security without him. And so Paul's come to realize that his whole life in Judaism, all his religious achievements were a waste. And now he's changed his mind. He considers them not a, a profit, but a loss. In fact, he says in verse 8, 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Our Paul doesn't tell us what the other things were that went into his everything that he lost for the sake of Christ. Maybe it was his position in family and society. Maybe in his inheritance. Maybe his job. The respect of the religious crowd. Some of those things might have value in themselves, but none of those things have any worth compared with knowing Christ. He says in verse 8, the end of verse 8, For his sake I have suffered, suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Knowing Jesus as Lord, knowing Christ, the King, is the most valuable thing in all the world. Let me say it again. Knowing Jesus as your Lord is the most valuable thing in all the world. If you have everything in the world on one side of the ledger, and you have knowing Christ as Lord on the other, Paul says Christ by far outweighs it all. There is no competition. Compared to knowing Christ, all this is worthless. It's in fact rubbish, which is a polite translation for a term that could include both unwanted trash and solid animal waste. It is of no comparative value when you put it beside Christ. And it's not worth rejoicing in these things. And for the sake of Christ then, Paul was willing to give everything up. And he did. Because knowing Christ is far, far more valuable than anything else. So what are the benefits of knowing Christ? What happens when we gain him that makes it so desirable? Why is Paul willing to lose everything that he once held dear in order to have Christ? Well, there are three things Paul mentions here. The first is about being judicially given the righteousness of Christ. Or to use the theological term, it's justification. The second thing is about being changed to be like Christ in our character. Or to use the theological term, progressive sanctification. The third is about being resurrected at the end of the age, or to use the theological term, glorification. Justification, progressive sanctification, glorification. First, knowing Christ as Lord entails that justification, that is, that is receiving the righteousness of Christ. Uh, Paul, from the end of verse 8, um, he's willing to, to suffer the loss of all his religious achievements and count them rubbish in order that he might gain Christ. And verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. On the day when God judges the world, Paul wants to be found in Christ. And friends, so do we. If we have faith in Christ, then we are united with him. We are in him. And because we are one with him, he shares our sin, we share his righteousness, and he paid for our sin on the cross when he was crucified for us and took the penalty for us. So it's not counted against us anymore. And what's left for us to share is his righteousness. Which is why God, the perfect judge, 
can declare us righteous on that last day, even though in practice we are sinners. And when God declares us righteous, the technical term for that is justification. And since we only get that by faith in Christ, it's called justification by faith. Paul says, I don't want a righteousness that comes of my own, that comes from the law. That would be terribly inadequate. It wouldn't be good enough for God. Because in spite of the admiration of other people, I, I cannot keep the law adequately. A few weeks ago, one of our church members spoke to me in the porch at the front before the service. He said, you know, having heard the Ten Commandments series, I know I don't have a hope of getting to heaven. And I said, yep, that's exactly right. That's the whole point. Unless you're perfect, a righteousness from the law is no righteousness at all. Can't get right with God by keeping the law. Instead, Paul says, I want a righteousness that at the end of verse 9 depends on faith. And that righteousness comes halfway through uh, verse 9, through faith in Christ Jesus, or you could translate it through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, which is probably better because all you're going to say it depends on faith at the end of the sentence. But either way, on the day of judgment, Paul wants God to look at him and see Christ's righteousness. And so do we. We want God to look upon the perfect life of Christ, who lived the life that we've failed to live, and died our death in our place. We want to be saved in the end, not based on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ that comes by faith. We want to be found in Christ, and that is the only way to be saved on the last day. That is the first benefit of knowing Christ, and that's far more valuable than anything in the world. Second reason why knowing Christ is so valuable is that, that Paul's willing to lose everything for it is because in verse 10, knowing Christ means knowing the power of his resurrection and sharing in his suffering to be like him in his death. What's he talking about there? Well, he's not talking about the power, the resurrection at the end. Right? We'll talk about that later. But it's about knowing that power of the resurrection here and now. You see, when God raised Jesus from the dead, that took incredible power. And knowing Christ means knowing that resurrection power in our lives. Because you know what? We were once dead in sin. We were cut off from God. We had no spiritual life. But the power of God raised us from death of sin and gave us a new life in Christ. And now we have a relationship with God and eternal life with him forever. If we have that new life, that's because... Resurrection power worked in us. And that power is also changing us to be like Christ because we know his resurrection power. We also share or we partner uh, in, his, in his sufferings. That's that fellowship, partnership, koinonia, communion word again. All right? uh, we share uh, in Christ's sufferings. The fact that God's people suffer doesn't mean God's forgotten us. It's part of sharing, fellowshipping, partnering with him. Because we share in what Christ has gone through before. But it's not just suffering is of value in and of itself. And there's much suffering in the world that's wasted. 
because we turn inwards or we get angry or we turn away from God instead of seeing it as a sharing in the suffering of Christ. Sharing becomes, it, suffering becomes sharing in the suffering of Christ when in verse 10 it becomes, involves becoming like him in his death. Right? The literal translation is being continuously conformed to the shape, to the form of his death. That is, we develop the character and attitudes and virtues that Jesus showed in the way that he died. The shape of his death, the sacrificial, loving, humble, faithful, non-retaliatory death, that shape of his death is to be that shape our lives take in the midst of suffering. Sometimes when you face suffering or persecution, you're tempted to be bitter. But then remember that we are partners in the suffering of Christ. So let's be conformed to his death, show his character in the way we respond. And so that our suffering becomes a way in which God makes us more like Christ. And so the second benefit of knowing Christ is to have that resurrection power work in us, bring us alive from the death of sin, from spiritual death to spiritual life, and then become like him in character through suffering. The third thing about knowing Christ is more valuable than anything else is there in verse 11. Our Bible translates it this way, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, when he says by any means possible, he doesn't mean he's not sure if it's possible to be resurrected or not. Right? It's pretty clear from the rest of Philippians, right? He's already expressed confidence in chapter 1 that when he dies, he'll be with Christ. He says he wants to be found on that judgment day in Christ and not having a righteousness of his own. In verse 20 to 21, he's going to look forward to the time when Jesus will transform our mortal bodies to be like his glorious body. So he's not doubting in here. But what he is saying is he doesn't know the route, the way that he will take to the resurrection. He doesn't know how he's going to get from here to there. He doesn't know if he's going to be martyred beforehand or whether he's going to keep on preaching and teaching for a long time and then get martyred or he's going to get preaching and teaching and then die of old age. Right? He doesn't know maybe Jesus is going to come back and he's still alive, maybe a different kind of resurrection, transformation. The route that Paul takes between here and the resurrection is not certain. But the fact of the resurrection is certain. Paul is a partner with Jesus in his death and if we are partners with Christ, in his death, we know that we'll be partners with him in his resurrection. And friends, that resurrection of the dead, that's more valuable than anything else, isn't it? It means life in God's kingdom forever. Everything else is rubbish by comparison. That's worth giving up everything for as well. And so, brothers and sisters, Paul wants the Philippians... God wants us to rejoice in the Lord. Our joy, our confidence, our boast, our hope is meant to come from who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It is a gospel-centered joy. We must never place our hopes and confidence in what we can do, but only in Christ. God counts us righteous in Christ so we can be confident on the day of judgment. We have new life in Christ through his resurrection power. We are being changed through suffering to be like Christ 
as we share with suffering in him, with him. And whatever the path between now and then, one day we will be raised from the dead to be in glory with Christ. Christ, my friends, is more precious than anything else in the world. If you don't have Christ, then come to him, whatever the cost. He is worth giving up everything for. And if you are in Christ, then don't you ever forget the value of that. Don't ever wander away from him. Forget not his benefits. Every day of your life, remember you are a sinner, but God accepts you through the righteousness of Christ. Keep coming back to the gospel and be thankful for Christ day after day. Keep gathering with God's people week by week so that we can remind each other how good it is to be in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Value Jesus above everything else. Don't let anyone or anything rob you of that joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you that by your grace you have made us to be in Christ. And we know that's, that's more valuable than anything else in the whole wide world. Thank you that you've given us his righteousness, not our own, for the day of judgment. Thank you that we have his resurrection power working in us now to give us new life. Thank you that we can share in his sufferings and become like him through them. And that in the end, whatever the path, we will be raised in glory. Thank you that all this is because of Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection for us. Guard us, we pray, in Christ. Keep us, we pray, from the influence of those who would distract us from Christ. Help us never to exchange Christ for anything or anyone else, no matter how attractive that might seem. Give us eyes that see the value of knowing Jesus and hearts that really treasure him above all things. We ask this, Father, in his name. Amen.